everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Evolving Engineering and Construction Brands Podcast with your host, Matthew Winkelstein. This week, I was fortunate to be joined by someone that I was absolutely fascinated to learn from. I've been talking to him for a little over a month and a half now, and I've just learned a lot since I've gotten to know him. We have a lot of similarities personally, and he's in a space that I am obsessed with right now, and that's new media. I'm obsessed with the way that people consume information, the way they spend time, and the way that potential customers can reach their audience in unique ways through things like podcasts. But then also when you zoom out of that, when you look at it from an industry perspective, I think people always think my industry is too small for media. And so this person's name is Travis Loop. He's founder and CEO of Waterloop. And his media organization is focused on the water space. And so I think some people might think the water space isn't big enough to have something like this. And we get into his numbers in the podcast. That's the furthest thing from the truth. And so I was so interested to have this conversation because of his experience, but also because I think there's more opportunities like this and opportunities will continue to spring up. The more that people understand the way that their potential customers, the way that their potential employees spend time, the way they consume information has changed and they have the ability and opportunity to show up there. And so Travis has seized that opportunity. He's been building Waterloop for a little over two years now, and it just continues to be more successful. He's in it full-time for two months. We talk about that in the episode. We get into some family stuff in the beginning of it. We talk about new media versus legacy media. We talk about social media. We talk about podcasts. We talk about the water space. And of course, we end up as best routine or habit. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Let's get into the episode. Travis, I am honored to have you on the podcast this morning. We have been conversing quite a bit over the last month and a half or so. It's been a lot of fun to get to know you. I came across your content because... I was trying to understand the municipal water space better and just the water industry in general. And I quickly stumbled across you and your content and was very impressed. But before we get into that, why don't we set a little context for our listeners? And why don't you tell us where you're calling in from today or dialing in from, however you want to put it, and what's your current role? Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on. This is awesome. Looking forward to a fun conversation and whatever I can lend to it. So I'm in coastal North Carolina in a city called Wilmington, North Carolina, a couple miles from the beach. Very happy about that location. And I am the founder, producer, host of Waterloop. It's a nonprofit media company that explores solutions through podcasts, videos, and social media content. So that's, that's kind of me in a nutshell. I can't rave enough about the content, especially if you're in the industry, but if you're just trying to understand the water market better, it's high quality content, not only informative, but that leads me to my first question of how did you get started in the water industry? And then we'll get into why you started Waterloop. Yeah, there's a couple of different places I could start the journey. I'll do a real far rewind real quick because the seeds were planted early for me. Just grew up as a water person, a swimmer, visiting the beach and all that stuff. And then I went on a field trip when I was in middle school. They took us to the Chesapeake Bay and they actually somehow put middle schoolers in canoes after dark and shoved us out into the marsh. And I just remember I still to this day, like the smell of the marsh at night and like the moon in the sky and the birds and the fish. And even though I was a water person, it like really was a connective moment for me. The other like childhood thing was I tried to start a newspaper for our elementary school. I made a fake front page and all this stuff. And I went up to the teacher 
And she looked at me with this horrified look and said, we don't have time for that. And so that was also formative too. And I stayed interested in journalism. I stayed interested in media. I did it in high school. And it was my first job after college working in as a newspaper reporter and editor. I got some payback. I volunteered with a local elementary school and I had them make their own paper. But then I ended up working in water. My first job was after I left media, I went to communications to the dark side of PR. And I worked for a governor in her communications office. And then my first real job was working on Chesapeake Bay cleanup communications. So that kind of came full circle there. Went on, worked for U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in D.C. for six years for the Water Environment Federation. So it's this media, water, communications convergence. Uh, I started a podcast for the Water Environment Federation, and I realized that I loved talking about water and interviewing all the people that are out there. There's so many fascinating people and projects. And I was like, I want to do this for myself. Just it was like back to that elementary school moment. I want to own this. I want to do this. I don't want to have a boss anymore. I want to have freedom. And somehow I got enough funding together to give it a shot. And that was just a couple months ago that I went exclusive with this. So that's where it stands today. It's been a winding journey, but very focused along the way on water and media and communications. I'd say you're one of the blessed ones that was able to follow your passion. You identified these two passions and you get back and forth between them, but you always had that purpose driven intent with, Hey, I love the water industry. I love journalism. And you were able to continue to follow that. And now all your experience is converging at like the perfect time, right? <laughs> yeah. Man, you always hear those cliches about follow your dream and do whatever you want. you follow your passion. Don't give up. Those things are so often said because they're so true. I guess I discovered if there's something you really, you can grind and believe and have the vision and you can make it come true. Yeah. So it was really that starting a podcast for someone else that got you more interested. At that time, you're like, hey, I'm sure you enjoyed communications and you enjoyed being in DC and all that came with that. But you were like, hey, this is a different opportunity for me. And were you in North Carolina before you started Waterloop or were these all kind of happening at the same time? So it was starting that podcast for the other company that sparked me like, oh, wow, this is what I want to get back to is my journalism roots. And I was in DC when that all happened. But the parallel track to me wanting my own entity was I've always wanted to get back to this particular lifestyle, right? I'm a big believer in that we have this life to live and we should live it the way we want to and the place we want to be. And so I was also always set on being at the beat and living that life. And so I wasn't going to settle for the regular rat race. And I love DC. It's my home turf, but I just wanted a different pace and place. How much of the pandemic was an influence on you or were you already on this mm. path before the pandemic? Yeah, I was already on the path before the pandemic. I was one of the remote people. I was working for an organization in DC while I was living in North Carolina. They let me locate down here. So I was doing that thing. The pandemic was an interesting equalizer for me, just in, from a workplace perspective. I think there was a lot of colleagues that were skeptical, right, about this. Wait a minute, this guy's just off over here and he's working for us and he's not in the office. I'd go up and visit. And then when the pandemic happened and everybody went remote and virtual, they realized like, oh, wow, you can actually work at home and be productive and be plugged in. And so there was like a little vindication for me <laughs> from like an HR perspective at that point. 
I had a very similar situation at my previous employer. I was one of the few people that worked out of their house. And the thing that I realized is it allowed me to do things at my pace. And I actually got more done because I wasn't spending as much time in the office joking around. I'd go in the office more for those personal connections. And when I needed to actually get focused worked on, I always worked on my house. And so I think more and more people are becoming aware of that. I think some companies are struggling with what I would call poor performers, people that take advantage of it. But my whole thing is they would be performing poorly if they were in the office walking around doing nothing or if they're at home. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and take away a good situation for your best performance because you don't know how to manage your lower performers. I spent plenty of time in offices and there's all those distractions of you're in the pantry in the morning talking to people while you're getting coffee or you're stopping in the hallway or you're stopping by somebody's cube or you're going out to a little longer lunch. There's plenty of ways to burn time around an office. My favorite part about being a business owner, I have the ultimate amount of freedom, but at the same time, there's no running out the clock. If I don't produce, I don't get paid. And there's a freedom that comes with that. I think you have to learn how to balance it, but it's incredible. If I just do nothing for the day, the business doesn't progress. So Mm -hmm. that's such a contradiction to the work world. And I think if more people thought of it that way, they would realize, oh, wow, this is It's a lot of fun, but a lot of responsibility. And if you're cut out for it, like it sounds like you are, and hopefully I am, I'm still figuring it out. It's a lot of fun and rewarding, but it's not easy. Here's just another way that you and I kind of align on things. Before I went exclusive with Waterloop, I was doing that full-time job and I was doing Waterloop like in the early mornings and the evenings on the weekends. So I was working hard and I was like, okay, I didn't think I was going to be coasting when I switched to doing this exclusively, but I'm like, oh my gosh, like I am just grinding now constantly in a good way. It's my own thing, but I didn't realize that I'd be busier, but it's all for the reasons you say it's, this is how I get ahead. This is how I move it forward and keep it going. So yeah, there's less downtime. (laughs) Yeah. I feel that too, but I feel way more productive because I'm not always context switching. I left full-time two months before my second son was born and people thought I was insane. I'm like, you don't understand what it takes to have a business and have a full-time career. That is what's hard. Granted, there are definitely economical positions you can put your family in and there are situations you have to overcome there. But at the same time, from a time standpoint, I thought, man, if I have my second kid and I don't do this now, either I'm never going to do it because I'm just going to be comfortable and not want to take the risk. Or even worse than that, I'm not going to be around for my kids because I'm so busy trying to do both things. It's hard to do two things. I learned that the hard way too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A couple thoughts on that. It took me a while to get rid of the idea that I had something else I had to get back to, right? Like I was just like Pavlov's dog. I was like instinctively thinking about that other thing. And now I'm finally, the focus is wonderful. It's so great, even though I'm putting so much work into it. And on the kids thing, I hear you. That's a crazy move, man. Just a couple months before a new one, you have a very understanding and supportive spouse there that that said, go for that. I had a little bit of a different kid motivation on mine. My boys are older. I have 14 and 12. And they're in this part of life where all these cool opportunities are coming to like pursue sports or pursue a certain hobby or whatever. And they have their whole lives in front of them. And I saw that and I'm like, oh man, am I just now just the old washed up guy? And I'm just got to go through the paces. And I'm like, forget that. I'm going to create my fresh opportunity also. Like they have to put in hard work to chase their dreams. I still can do that. So I fed off of their 
opportunity and their youth to to go after my thing. I'm like, let me show them dad is not done. <laughs> what am I going to do to show them how to create this good life for yourself? Am I going to sit back and tell them and preach about it? Or am I actually going to go out there and live it? So I love that you were driven in that same way. So yes. many parallels. So yeah. I'll get us back on topic because we could talk about this for a long time, but maybe there's a smaller number of people that are interested in entrepreneurship like you and I are. Um, so more relevant to our actual subject, what prompted you to start such a niche industry focused media company? And what were the first indications of, hey, I think this could be a success? Very good questions. I think that a lot of people have the inclination, like they want to create the biggest thing that they can, that's going to have the biggest audience. That's great goal, right? If you have no audience, if you don't have a defined audience, you don't have any audience, right? You've got to really pick something that people are interested in and that you have expertise in. And I had just worked in water for so long, you think it's niche, but there are a couple million people that work in the water industry and space in the United States. And that's the product of a Brookings Institute report, right? I forget a couple million people, over 2 million people. So that's a great audience right there. And that's just in kind of the water utility space. There's a big ecosystem around that. People in government, people in universities, hearing firms, tech companies, advocacy groups. So you just see there's this big ecosystem and then people that are generally interested in it. And I've done research on podcasting and on content and you want to have a defined audience. It's good to be specific because then those people are definitely interested in what you're going to do. And there's enough of them out there. You don't have to have 2 million subscribers to something for it to be valuable, for it to be something you can monetize. You have to have that engagement and that close connection with people. And it's what I know about. <laughs> so I was like, this is going to be my topic. As you say that a couple million people, that's fascinating. And I didn't even hear you mention industrial water either, which is becoming more and more of a topic of where that just expands it even more. I'm sure that is just continues to give you more pivot points. And once again, I experienced some of the same thing where it's, and I fell victim to all of the poor things when you start a business. I had nine customers that were all in different areas. And it was like, mm. it was just as dizzying of when I had two jobs. Cause it was like, I'm trying to learn all these <laughs> industries and it's, what am I doing? And then the more specific I've gotten, the more niche I've gotten, the more skill I've acquired, the better I've gotten at it. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. And I was definitely one that made it. It's cool to hear that you didn't make that mistake in the beginning. You followed your direct passion and said, hey, I'm going to speak to this industry. And if I could real quick, the results speak for themselves. For people that haven't heard of Waterloop before, haven't consumed your content, your content continues to grow month after month in the water industry to the point now that you're at almost a thousand downloads per episode. I think if you just ask people, hey, how many people actually consume this content? Almost a thousand people just download the podcast. And if you understand content, but the podcast downloads is like the tip of the iceberg because people really consume short-term video. And when you look at those numbers, you're at over 25,000 video views on social media. And so that just shows the power of what you're doing and who you're speaking to. And you said it earlier, I want to reiterate it. You're just a couple months into focusing on this. This is the very beginning of this. <laughs> it's it's so exciting. It's scary, but it's so exciting because it's going very well. These kind of first few months of exclusivity. And 
for sure, I spent a couple years building this, right? Like I didn't just flip the switch on. I definitely have been around for a few years. I've put out 175 episodes as of today. And so it's like years of foundation and just building and that that grind you hear about. But it has it has grown. And I appreciate you sharing some of those numbers. It's listeners in all 50 states, but also like almost 20% of my audience is international. I have had listeners from 80 countries, which is just really wild. And yeah, people love that short content, right? That's the world we live in. There's people consuming the long stuff. People love the sound bites and the quick stuff they can scroll through. So it's going well. Yeah. It sounds like you figured out the media component of it too. It's you see a lot of people get it wrong, especially my audience is marketers and business sales mm. leaders in these engineering construction firms. And when I work with some of their marketers, they're in the leaders too. They're always trying to get someone to do something. It's mm. like we want them to go consume this long ebook or this long white paper. It's like, why are you trying to force someone into doing something? Why don't you create the content and make it so it's the way that they already consume? And then if your content is compelling enough, they'll go to the longer form content. 800 is a lot less than 25,000 or a thousand is a lot less than 25,000. <laughs> but if you just focused on the podcast and tried to push everyone to downloads, you would miss out on 25,000 video views, which is insane. And so I think if people reapproach their own marketing efforts that way and thought about how do we communicate and in the places that people want to spend time and the way they want to consume things and then provide them the opportunity to consume longer form content at their leisure, that's really the way you're successful. Would you add anything to that or do you disagree with that at all? I come from the companion side of the house, being on the editorial earned media side, right? I was the comms PR guy. Then you have the marketers. And I've been in situations where I've collaborated with those within organizations and I love it, like great team, but we have different strengths and different approaches that complement each other. So I've always been on the content creation, earned media press release, pitching pitching reporters, putting stuff out there and focusing on the content kind of piece. And so I guess that's how I've approached this as well, is let's put it out there. And I've had to push myself sometimes to be a little more promotional and try to toot my own horn or brag about something. That's not my first instinct, but yeah, I guess that editorial side just stays with me. Yeah, that's like I said, congratulations, man. It's awesome to see. We talked before. I love when I stumble across something that, you know, many people would consider new media and see mm. you be this successful so far. Granted, it probably doesn't seem like right off the bat, but what is that old Chinese, the adage, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. But at any point in the journey, did you ever think you'd be where you are today? Man, honestly, it was the goal. It was the goal from, yeah. from the beginning was like, I'm starting this because I want to make it my exclusive endeavor. I avoid saying full-time because I was really full-time with it from the beginning, like the amount of hours and everything. So I, but I wanted it to be what I was doing with my life was this. So it was a conscious build the whole time, but every day scrapping and clawing for one more follower or one more or whatever it might be. Yeah, I'm definitely envious of that. So I had to start my business 
I didn't want to have customers that were in the same industry that I was employed in. Mm -hmm. And because I was selling marketing services, because I was like, I don't ever want to be construed as competing with my employer that's paying me a good salary. I feel like I'm just now starting to get some of that traction a year into actually being full-time because I started out with customers in these way different industries than the ones, my experience where I have to serve. And so it's been more of a slower slog, but now just the last three months, I feel like, okay, like I joke with people last year. I was like in that mode, you just got to believe, you just got to believe, you just got to believe. Now it's like, okay, there's actually evidence that it's worth believing in now. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's that's what happens, right? You slog away and then at some point, like the momentum really kicks in and it starts to go downhill for you in a good way, right? That's awesome. I just was wanted to mention, I'm 47. Like if there's something you've always wanted to do, like it's never too late to do it. The cliches are so accurate. (laughs) Yeah. They became cliches for a reason. I think they got ruined in like the nineties with all those corporate <laughs> pictures and stuff. And yeah, people yeah. associate that, but it's like, no, there's actually a lot of wisdom in that. And some of the simplest things have the deepest meaning. You just have to go out there and live it. And once you actually live it, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. You do just have to believe. Yeah. You do just have to show up every day. You do just have to continue to work hard. Those posters with the mountains on them or the yes. eagle with a little saying under it. Good stuff. <laughs> Listen, we're in the same frame of mind there. All right. When did you first become interested in utilizing social media to communicate? I obviously, before you started this endeavor, even a couple of years ago, you must have said, Hey, this is a good place for me to communicate our message. What was that first instinct you had? Yeah. Social media really kind of started in like the late, what, 2008, 2009, 2010, 11, 12 is when it started to get there, right? Facebook was 2008, maybe. Twitter was a little bit after that. It's a little hazy, but I was working comms at that point on Chesapeake Bay cleanup, also at the US EPA in DC. So it just, it came into the fold with those jobs and like starting to experiment with like using that stuff. So I was always tinkering with it along the way. It was a really big deal. Twitter was when I was at EPA in DC, using that to push information out there. We had some pretty good accounts at that time. Our water account in the 2015, had like over 100,000 followers. So it was always part of the toolkit along the way. I loved it because I always had to pitch reporters or send out a press release or try to earn that media. And this was like the tool that let you go right to the consumer, right to your audience. And I was like, hey, let's short circuit. Let's go around the press and take our information right to people, not have to worry about it being wrong, getting interpreted wrong, getting a quote wrong, being able to really get the factual information out there. I had an interesting perspective because I was a reporter and in the media for so long. And then when I came to the other side, I saw unfortunate how the media can get things wrong. I'm not a media basher at all, but I saw them like miss angles or have big information gaps. And so I loved social because I could actually get the accurate, complete info out there to people. So just early adopt and believer in it. Yeah. I wouldn't call myself a media basher, but I'm definitely not a proponent (laughs) of the media. I think that what's been the internet has shown is there's been gatekeepers to information. And if you Mm. simplify to me, the internet, because I see it happen in the engineering field too. I used to work for a large OEM and 
the most valuable thing they had was the information. And so they lorded that over and you had to do things their way to get the information. All of a sudden, when you could go get the information, those walls came crumbling down and they didn't know how to operate well with their customers in mind. And I think media is facing some of the same thing today where they've forgotten who their actual customers are and what they're actually trying to do. And so now they're saying, oh, Twitter's ruining everything. Facebook's ruining everything because people are going directly to, to the technical people that have the information, short-circuiting them, and then they're not being the ones that can choose what people hear. And that's causing, obviously, business challenges, but yeah. also, I think, information challenges where it's who does control it. And it's a lot more up to general citizens to be able to determine what information is accurate, which is mm. probably scary for a certain generation. But when you talk to younger generations, they're savvy at sniffing out what's fake and what's real. And they have much more of a critical eye for content that comes from the internet. Mm. I think if you talk to someone that's over 50, it might be a bigger challenge, but it's a challenge for me. Sometimes I have to think, wait a second, why do they want me to think this? And then, mm. okay, challenge it myself. I find that fascinating. And that's why I said, I, that's why I love your effort, the new media, where it's, you're not relying on going to a publication that may or may not be interested in your story or have to spin your story a certain way to get the media to consume it. You're talking directly to the people that actually want to consume this water related content. I'm not a media basher, but I'm definitely not a proponent of legacy media and the way that they throw up gates and the way that they continue to operate and try and bash social media as a way to really maintain power is what I believe it is. Yeah. And maybe I have a more sympathetic perspective having come from the media. I think a lot of people say that all journalism is terrible and bad now and all that kind of stuff. And what happened was the internet came out, social media came out, newspapers and others, they lost all those classifieds ads, they lost all that advertising, all that revenue, then they had to slash their newsrooms that affected the quality of the journalism and the extent of the coverage. And it's been a tough fight ever since then. As for the information out there, and I still myself practice like a journalist, like I like to check multiple sources on whatever that story is. Let's see what they're saying over here. Let's say what there's check three or four places. And I try to teach that to my kids too. They're obviously on the internet and looking at things. They tell me something they read and I'm like, great, check it a couple other places <laughs> and triangulate to find the truth. Yeah. What's the strongest <clears throat> argument against that? That's where I think we really need to get to. Like, what are the, I saw someone at Elon Musk on Twitter and they said, a good feature would be is if this is the point of view, what's the best, strongest point of view against that? And then put those pieces of content side by side and let mm. people start to make decisions for themselves. That's brilliant. Right. And then you have an opportunity to look at it a lot easier. I don't know if you could do that algorithmically or how challenging mm. that would be from a technical standpoint, but I thought that was a fascinating way to think about it. Oh man, I know they can figure out that algorithm. They can absolutely figure out how to pull left-leaning and right-leaning news and put those side by side and put something from the middle and put all three of those up there and say, the truth is out there. <laughs> figure it out. They, the algorithms, they can control that. We know it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And one thing that I think that the internet's taught me is the truth is very rarely black and white. There's typically <laughs> degrees of truth and depending on which facts you look at or which perspective you look at, it can change that perspective too. And I'm sure you have to deal with that a little bit in your own media industry and trying to figure out how do you represent all those sides. I think that leads to a good question Then we'll get into your best routine or habit. How do you make sure that you represent all sides of a story and how do you go out and get that information to make sure that you're bringing the best product for the people that are in the water industry? 
I'm a journalist at heart. And I would say what I do is solutions journalism. That's a thing that's out there now. And that's one of the reasons I started Waterloop. The overwhelming coverage about water issues is the doom and gloom. It's the latest crisis, the latest challenge, the latest problem. It's critical to know about those things for people to be educated about them. But I'm interested in a more sustainable, equitable water world. And so I'm also trying to say there are positive things happening. There are solutions out there. There are success stories. Sharing those things can help raise all boats. Like others can copy those and model after them. Where are things working? Let's bring those stories forward, not in a propaganda kind of way, but like, all right, what's the challenge here? What was the problem? What's wrong with this river? But then what's happening positive? How are you guys fixing it? What are you doing? There is a little balance in that respect. I do start out with what's the issue, but it's very much, okay, how do we tackle this? What's this path to progress? And that's my formula. I love that. We need more of that. I tell people that are negative, there's just as many things to be positive about. And that's one of the things that does frustrate me about the typical news. It's all the stories are picked to be negative. And I understand, I guess, from an advertising standpoint, you have to do some of that stuff to be able to get attraction. Like people aren't going to watch CNN if there's not a crisis. But yeah. Every day there's something that could be a crisis somewhere. And if you're constantly in that mode, it just puts people in such a negative demeanor. And so I love that you're approaching it that way. And, you know, I like last week you had a post about gray water beer. That was incredible. Oh, yeah. Hey, look at this stuff. Recycled beer the, right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Beer made from recycled wastewater, basically. That's the water is cleaned to the level that it can be used again and used in a beer. And so the beer is like a positive PR thing for how we can clean water, right? It's a solution. So yeah, it's not propaganda, it's truth, but it's the positive truth. Absolutely. And we could all use a little bit more of that. So before <laughs> we get into your best routine or habit, how can people follow your journey? How can people follow Waterloop's journey? Where should they come to consume your content? The one-stop shop is just waterloop.org. And then you can find the podcast on all the podcast platforms. Just search for Waterloop. Same thing on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram are the big ones. Just look up Waterloop on there. So find me on all those main channels. Easy search, hopefully. Yes. And we'll link to all that stuff in the show notes. We'll link to Travis's LinkedIn profile too. He's a good follow. He brings more context to stories and you can catch him consuming a gray water beer on a Friday. That made my Friday feel good. So nice. All right, Travis, why don't you take us out with what's your best routine or habit? God, the best routine or habit, I'm a list guy. Like I have to really make my to-do lists and basically every evening or kind of that last thing I do is I map out my next day by down to like the 30 minute increment of like, here's this call I have, here's this project, here's where I'm going to do this thing. That's how I juggle it all and get things done is just that detailed list and even personal schedule down to like the 30 minute increment. Nice. So list and time blocking. You don't hear a lot of people on the podcast because we interview successful people. You don't hear very many people that say, I don't plan my day. Plan your day, work the plan, and you'll continue to move forward. Travis, thanks again for doing this. It's been fantastic. I'm excited to continue to cheer you and Waterloop's journey on. And yeah, we'll have to have you on some time and check in and see how you're doing. Matthew, this was awesome to be on with you. Thank you so much. Really love what you're doing too, putting out so much good content for people. A lot of great lessons to be learned from all your guests. Thanks a ton. Appreciate it. 